I'm Nicole Ferraro, and this is The Divide, a podcast from Light Reading exploring the ongoing digital divide, why and where it still exists, and what needs to be done to get people everywhere connected to reliable high-speed internet. Today, I am joined by Matt Polka, CEO of ACA Connects, a trade association representing small and mid-sized independent service providers. We discuss broadband access in the service areas that ACA Connects represents, as well as what the Trade Association wants to see from the final rules for the NTIA's $42.45 billion Broadband Equity Access and Deployment, or BEAD, grant program. Matt, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to the podcast. Nicole, it's great to be here today. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. So to start off, I'd love if you could just give me some brief background on ACA Connects, uh, the type of providers you guys represent, um, anything you'd like me to know about the organization. Sure. ACA Connects has been around as a trade association representing smaller, midsize, independent providers uh, since really 1993. It's almost 30 years. Um, our members today are broadband providers, first and foremost. Uh, they also provide phone service. They also provide cable video service. They're primarily located in smaller markets and rural areas, and now in increasingly in some suburban and competitive areas. Uh, today, we have about uh, 700 members uh, that serve about 10 million broadband subscribers all across the country, all 50 states. We're also in many, many territories. Uh, our job at ACA Connects is to be their voice in Washington, D.C., whether it's before Congress, uh, particularly the Commerce Committees, uh, the Federal Communications Commission, or really any other federal agency, commission, or otherwise uh, that is dealing with issues that affect our members. So we've advocated before in their behalf at the Department of Justice and mergers, Federal Trade Commission and mergers and other things, Small Business Administration regarding loans and availability to help small businesses, uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture as part of their Rural Utility Service broadband funding. So lots of different places, as well as with the White House and many uh, administrative departments. So as an association that represents the smaller providers, the rural providers, you're right in the middle of all of this action right now as we seek to close the digital divide in, in the U.S. Um, and you recently wrote a letter to NTIA head Alan Davidson regarding uh, bead policies on the forthcoming grant funding, that, that about 42.5-ish billion. Um, so let's go through some of your points in that letter. Um, one of the things that you brought up was uh, the FCC mapping. Obviously, that's uh, under the FCC but you had some ideas on how the NTIA could help with this process. Uh, mapping is clearly the like essential piece of this puzzle, but it doesn't quite exist yet. So what's your concern with regard to FCC mapping, and what role do you see the NTIA playing in addressing these issues in its rulemaking? First off, we're, we're really happy with the, the nature of the, the program itself that came out of the Investment Infrastructure and Jobs Act. Um, it really is an opportunity to close the digital divide. And, and we, were, we happily supported it, worked on that language, uh, and we're gl very glad with where it is. As far as moving forward, um, it was Senators Collins and Manchin who says, the first thing we have to do is get the maps right. And when you go back and you look at federal policy on broadband funding, really m more than 13 years ago when this really started with the national broadband plan, we had everything but the maps. We still don't mm -hmm. have the maps. So getting the maps right is the first thing that is is critically, critically important. And, and the good news is that the FCC is moving forward and really improving this process and the maps uh, that are to come. You know, over the next six months, uh, we'll see uh, standards met at the FCC. We'll, we'll see filings uh, from our members and other broadband providers that provide that granular data. And then the FCC will move forward in developing a version 
1.0. It's not necessarily a problem, but it, it's something that we, we hope NTIA, the FCC, and all others recognize is just going to take a little bit more time. For these maps to be effective for purposes of the NTIA program, we have to verify the data. The, the data that comes is going to be based on what the FCC is receiving as part of its so-called broadband fabric, as well as what's submitted. But that hasn't been verified in any way. So we, we are suggesting that what the FCC needs to do once this version 1.0 is done is to have a challenge process where this data is put out into the public where broadband providers can test that against where they're providing broadband. And then we can, in, we can verify the information which will take probably about another four to six months. But for the NTIA to get this program right and to do it the right way, as Congress is certainly suggesting, they, they need verified maps. Now, that doesn't mean that NTIA can't start funding in the meantime. Maybe they could start to fund by providing some you know, smaller amounts to states, but really keep the bulk of the funding until the, the verified maps are available. That should be the basis of all of the major funding that goes out under the NTIA program. Gotcha. And you did, sorry, I think you said this, but how long do you think that challenge process should be? I think it could take about four to six four, months okay. once the maps come out. Um, so, you know, if uh, if as uh, Chairman Rosen, Chairwoman Rosenworcel said, they expect to have version 1.0 in you know, late fall, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're probably talking about the first part of uh, 2023 when the, the, the verified maps would be available. And I think, you know, if, if, if the goal is to get this program right, to really solve and close the digital divide, we need to take this time to do it the right way. It's a lot of money, uh, mm-hmm. $42. billion. I mean, we, we've talked about over the years, uh, unfortunately, historically, the waste, fraud, and abuse that's occurred in many programs, federal and otherwise. I mean, you could look back at 2009 when NTIA had about $4 billion, and there was so much waste, fraud, and abuse because we didn't take the time to get it right. Now we have 10 times that or more. We need to get it right, and that means verified maps. Gotcha. Okay. So another point you made in your letter uh, was on prioritizing unserved areas first. And this is definitely a a hot topic, very important with a lot of industry stakeholders. Um, But one question I have for you is how do we do this while also ensuring that funds are getting to the underserved areas where people are lacking access because of a lack of competition and, and, uh, uh, and as a result of a lack of competition, they can't afford service? How do we manage that uh, you know, while also making sure that the people who completely lack broadband access are getting it. Absolutely. And, and we recognize there's a need. Um, first, let's go back to the law itself. Uh, the law itself under the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act says this money is to be used to serve unserved areas first. That mm-hmm. is the focus. Members of Congress, House, Senate, Republican, Democrat have written to the NTIA saying you got to serve the unserved areas first. The people that, that don't have it or have just the bare amount of it. So, so that is, is the focus of the bill, and we think that's the, the proper focus for it. When it comes to uh, unserved, underserved areas, um, there, there are a number of things. Uh, when we were working with Congress last year and we, and we submitted our uh, very detailed report with the help of, a, of an analytical firm called Cartesian about the nature of where broadband exists, we showed that uh, un- underserved areas are steadily being upgraded. The FCC's own data shows that many underserved areas uh, are um, being now served by other uh, other providers and that broadband competition in these areas, uh, it, it's growing, largely because when we say underserved, this is these are areas that, that do have a bit more 
population density. So they're a little bit more uh, appealing to, to broadband providers as they go in with, with First Blush. So um, we, we know these areas are already being upgraded. Our members are, are in those areas upgrading them. There's more competition. And, and last but not least, what I would say about how we serve um, underserved areas, it kind of goes back to the first point. Um, we not only have the, the bead program here, the $42 billion, but you have Treasury's Capital Projects Fund, with the, which is $10 billion. You have the RUS Reconnect program. You have the FCC's RDOF. Uh, you have many state grant programs. We, we believe that all, all of this mix of funding is going to help to serve those underserved areas while bead focuses first and foremost primarily on underserved. Uh, I think to, you know, if, and that's a whole nother question about how these programs all work together, but uh, which we hope they do and which we hope there's a lot of conversation between these, these groups in the states, but working together, BEAD focusing on unserved, other programs helping in the underserved area, as well as just competition itself. We're going to, we're going to make sure that uh, those areas get solved. I mean, last thing I would say is, you know, uh, we, we see broadband providers in general, you know, investing somewhere around 75 to $80 billion a year for the, for the entire industry, you know, probably 10 to 20% of that is, is our members. So a lot of private money is, is going into these markets anyway, and I'm certain that they're going to get served going forward. Okay, got it. So just one more question on your on your letter to Alan Davidson. Uh, sure. You also mentioned um, funding future-proof networks. I would love to talk to you about what a future-proof network is because it's now become a bit of a buzz phrase uh, being thrown around by a lot of service providers now that all of this funding is available. So in from your perspective, is a future-proof network only future-proof if it is fiber direct to the premises? Um, is fixed wireless future-proof as well? How do you define it? Well, uh, first, we define it by agreeing with many members of Congress who have already written NTIA, and, and our letter is largely sort of an affirmation of some of those comments. Again, Senate, House, Republican, Democrat, you know, looking at, at what is needed in, in these areas. Uh, fiber certainly fits that bill. I mean, our members today, as they look at greenfield areas, you know, they're not going in with 100 by 20. They're going in with fiber. Um, many members of Congress have said fiber is the way to go. Um, it's certainly the case that uh, for, for some of our other members, maybe the more traditional cable operator members that are using some sort of a, of a hybrid fiber coax, DOCSIS 4, for instance, you know, they're providing gigabit service. They're providing up to 10 you know, gigs in, in their market with this hybrid fiber coax. So that certainly solves the need. I, I would say that most providers, as they think about this in terms of building future proof, are focused on fiber and putting more fiber in there. And that's what you'll see from our members for sure going forward. As it relates to fixed wireless, um, no, I don't think that really meets the, the definition. Uh, you know, it would require substantial investment to provide next generation services. And, and our experience is that while that may, you know, in our markets meet a broadband need to connect people, maybe at a lower cost, it just doesn't have the breadth and the scope and the width and the capacity, you know, to meet all of these next generation services that consumers demand having every day. Absolutely. So um, how are your member ISPs preparing for this influx of, of federal funding? As you mentioned, there are tons of other federal funds that have been filling in some of the blanks, but this is a significant chunk of money. It's a huge chunk of money um, and uh, they are very excited about it. <laughs> Um, they're also concerned in many ways because of 
past historical misses when it comes to broadband funding that resulted in essentially taxpayer-funded overbuilds. I come back to the challenge process, getting these things right, getting the maps right, um, getting uh, state and federal governments uh, open and willing to a challenge process, a serious challenge process, which we don't always see, you know, on a state-to-state -state level. And I can tell you stories today where where that's happening. Um, but our members in general, uh, we're, we're working very closely together. Uh, their views about this funding has evolved over time. You know, when you go back 10 years or so when this money first started to become available, uh, it was largely made available to sort of uh, uh, traditional constituencies, whether, whether telephone or cooperative. And, you know, a lot of mistakes were made, you know, simply because of the way those programs were rolled out. And our members were kind of handoffish. We preferred more to be defensive, meaning um, let's make sure we're not being overbuilt as opposed to let's go to use the money. Well, that concern still exists, and that's why the challenge process built into the, uh, to the IIJA is very, very important and one that we hope the states take seriously as well as the NTIA. But our members are also very interested now in actually taking part, um, having this capital to, to serve and to use in some of these unserved areas is really, really important. So they're interested in applying. Uh, so today, uh, they're preparing the information that they know they'll need to submit, uh, engineering reports, financial reports, uh, the like uh, maps of, of their service areas they're preparing. We're working together with them um, on a state-by-state -state basis almost, um, uh, communicating with state lawmakers and regulators that are likely to be part of this broadband funding going forward. Uh, we're visiting with them in state capitals to go up and demonstrate what our members are doing in some of these small towns and rural areas, helping to build connections and relationships. So they're, they're taking it very, very seriously um, you know, in, in both offensive, meaning using the money as well as defensive, ensuring that lawmakers and regulators know where they already are, you know, so we can get the money where it's needed the most. But I think it's the most uh, organized approach so far that I've seen in more than 10 years of broadband funding. And, and we remain very hopeful. So just to close us out um, on a positive note, although all of this has been very positive, but we can't get enough uh, good news <laughs> these days. <laughs> we need as much as possible. Can you share a uh, story about where one of your member ISPs has recently made an impact in delivering service where it didn't previously exist? I wish we had the time. Um, I, I, I literally <laughs> have been um, across the country visiting members. You know, I can think of uh, a, a small telephone company member that we have in, in central New Mexico, where literally, you know, they serve one or two customers a mile because it's so rural, uh, but they're serving it with, with high-speed broadband. Um, and I've seen countless examples of that across the country. You know, more recently, we're seeing, you know, some members like uh, Chantel, which is now known as Glow Fiber, uh, Vexus uh, Fiber, Metronet, they're spending hundreds of millions of dollars of their private capital. They're entering new markets where consumers are crying out for faster, better broadband. We see this today happening in market across, you know, markets all across the country. Every day we see this reported. Uh, in, in other cases, we see members of ours like Mediacom and uh, MCTV based in Maslin, Ohio, where they're, they're edging out of their service areas to upgrade towns that literally never had broadband before. And I've spoken particularly to the folks at, at MCTV where, where they have taken their service broadband service into towns that literally only had DSL. 
now you would think that that at first there would be it's so great to have this broadband, but people are skeptical because they've mm-hmm. had DSL that's gone out so many times that they remain skeptical. But once they see it, once they connect it, once they realize how this broadband from MCTV, MediaCom, and other of our members literally transforms a community, connects them to the world. That's that's one of the really cool things, and it's and it's an untold story about the pandemic. You know, because of the investment of our members to do just this very thing that I talked about, you know, th- they were ready to meet the need of the pandemic before we even knew of anything called COVID-19. Mm. And before we knew that tens of millions of people were going to go home to work, uh, to learn, to talk to their doctor, uh, they were ready for it. And, and it's because of the transforming effect of broadband, which they're continuing to build upon. And it's just so exciting. And we're just so proud of them. And it's a terrific story that we love to tell. Washington when it comes to uh, broadband funding, broadband expansion, and how important these unique, experienced, uh, independent companies are in these small towns and rural areas to really close that digital divide. Well, you and your member organization, member companies are really well-placed to make a difference in the future of this country, and you're already doing it. So thank you so much for your hard work and for taking some time to talk to me about it today. I hope you'll come back. Oh, my, my privilege, and thank you very much for having me. Love to come back. Thank you again, Matt, for joining me. Thank you as well to our producer, Pierre Landrio, for making this episode. Be sure to subscribe to the Light Reading Podcast for more episodes of The Divide, as well as interviews and insights from the Light Reading team. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.